Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of It's All About the Questions, where we help you understand that it's the questions that you ask, not the answers you get that can change your life. Because if you don't ask the right question, you're not going to get the answers that move you forward. You're going to get an answer, but it may be the answer you want, not the answer you need. So um, for those of you who have read my book, you know that I lay out the whole plan. The book is What Would a Wise Woman Do? Questions to Ask Along the Way. And it, it lays out how you know whether you're asking the right questions or not. This show is about helping you ask the right questions, but also you have to ask the right questions of the right people. So I bring some amazing people to you every week here on, live on the radio on iHeartRadio and WAXE out of Vero Beach, Florida, Waxy. And then you get to listen to it on the podcast. So some of you may be listening to this after the live show has been completed. But what it's all about is I want to expose you to people who have different perspectives on things. In my other life, I have a client, Sazmax, who is doing amazing work with changing the way resellers, managed service providers in the technology inter- industry relate to vendors who provide cloud software solutions. I'm on their strategic advisory board and I'm their director of online channel events. Um, My good friend Dina uh, Moskowitz um, founded the company and I met Mark Haskelson um, because I interviewed him and we did a webinar and I just, I was blown away by Mark. He's the president and CEO of the compliancy group, which deals with HIPAA compliance and compliance as a service versus just security that a lot of people do. I had a big vertical in, in medical health care when I had my tech company. But what I found out is he not only has 25 years of sales, marketing, and leadership, and held executive positions all over the place, but he is a top direct marketer. He has worked with some of the biggest names in the business, and he is one of the biggest names in the business in direct marketing. So I asked Mark to be here with us today. So Mark, Welcome. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. It's exciting to have you on because there's some really cool stuff that you've done in your life and that you're doing in your life now. And I, to me, the core of every business is marketing. And, you know, that's not about selling. It's about getting people to understand your product to the point where they want it, that they, they know they need it. And it's about understanding uh, your clients and you ask a lot of really great questions and encourage people, too. So I think this is going to be a lot of fun today. <laughs> I think so, too. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So here's a question for you. You know, you were an engineering student. You came from upstate New York. And how did you end up going from engineering to direct marketing? Well, I actually was very lucky, and it does have to do with questions. Uh, and in my case, it was a question that came from a marketing professor. Uh, I was taking a, an elective um, outside of my engineering program, and the teacher came up to me and asked me would I be interested in, in, par- in participating in a scholarship, basically, a competition. And my original response to him was that, you know, listen, I'm not a marketing guy. I, you know, I, I don't write well. I have colorblind and all these things. And what he pointed out to me was that really marketing is about analytics. 
and, and understanding databases and, and segmentation. So I agreed to, to, to compete in this scholarship, and it really changed the whole direction of my life. What was it that was the question you asked yourself that made well, you change <laughs> direction? Uh, well, it was really a couple of different things. Um, if you've ever been in an engineering program, it's I have exactly a degree fun. in computer science <laughs> and started out as an EE minor. So yeah, get it. Yeah. <laughs> so I got to admit, going to a marketing class, it was a hell of a lot easier. Uh, but the question I did really ask myself, which was really prompted by this professor, and his name is Bob Berger, and I've never been able to find him and thank him. Um, okay, so Bob Berger, if you're out there, find Mark Haskelson. Uh, just Google compliancy group, and he's all over LinkedIn and everything. Okay, that's my public service announcement of the day. There you go. <laughs> Why, thank you. And I really have tried to track him down. Um, so it, what, it really caused, what it really caused me to look at was, here I believe that I should become an engineer, and then that path was the right way for me to have a successful you know, life. Um, but but when, he, when Bob had... Put, presented to me this, this different approach, right? And then he, he, he told me stories of, you know, how his career had changed. It really prompted me to step back and say, hey, what's really the right thing for me? And um, in that case, I went from being this engineering guy uh, to literally changing my major and becoming a direct marketer. And even then, you know, I'm, at, the, at that point, there was no direct marketing. It didn't exist as an industry. It was at its very beginning stages. Yeah, we tend so a little to, bit of a leap of faith. <laughs> we tend to forget that marketing completely changed. You know, the, the TV series Mad Men was one way of marketing. It was a very traditional way of marketing. But in its own way, it was a little bit of direct marketing that pulled all that stuff together. But how did direct marketing as we know it today change the face of how we do business? Well, Originally, the belief of most marketing in, let's say, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and maybe even early 80s was really the idea of throw something out there, catch someone's eye, and hope that they responded. So whether it was a magazine ad, uh, newspaper, uh, television at that point, or radio was, was there but still not quite mature yet. Um, and, and what really happened was, as time went on, that, that's not a very efficient distribution method. Right, so you're throwing at you know a million per people, hoping that you um, happen to have spoken at the right time in front of the right, let's say, ten people. The idea of direct marketing, and 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 the folks that um, originated this, were really what they were coming out of the cataloging space. So they realized and these guys, they're Ted's like Ted, people like Ted Spiegel, Wonderman, uh, my mentor, which is a guy named um, uh, Tim Lytle who did payment processing, the actual ability to take a credit card over the phone, um, they recognized that if you, could, if you could communicate more directly with the right person at the right time, you would get much better marketing results. So now who's the right person at the right time gets a little more complicated, and there's a little bit of magic there. Um, but the, me- the mechanics um, was, hey, let's not do this, this mass shotgun thing anymore. Let's get much more focused and laser. And, and by the way, once that concept was rolled out, um, it, it's what, you know, th- th- what is the concept of, of uh, uh, let's say, Amazon today is that. It's the growth of what was this idea of, of a direct one-to-one relationship in between a consumer and a marketer who wants to talk to them. 
All right. So you mentioned this magic, you know, the right person, the right time, creating this direct one-to-one conversation. It can't all be magic. There has to be something concrete that gets you starting to think about how you laser into that right person, right time. So what is that? So this is actually how, why Bob got me involved with this. Because you're right, it's not really magic. It's actually rather uh, predictable science. Okay, the the magic part often is um, when you're looking at a whole set of numbers, how do you zero in on the the trends or 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 the or the power or a line if you want to call it through a bunch of data? And that was one of the things that some people are very have a knack for. Like in my case, it was very obvious to me when I was looking at data or information that there was this, let's say, group of a thousand people out of a hundred thousand that showed some sort of um, character that we could then, once we identified it, say, okay, um, now that you know that, let's say, this person has a certain amount of traits. So, um, you know, uh, if you, my background and experience, had a lot to do with this, where uh, just because you have a car, okay, if you have a car, I can assume you drive, okay? I can assume that you have some reasonable credit, right, because you bought a car. Now, but the mistake is if I just assume that every person who drives a car is the right person to, to sell something to, that doesn't work, right? Because if I'm trying to sell an accessory that's just for Jeeps, let's say, I need to make sure I'm marketing to the person who has a Jeep, maybe in between a particular year. Maybe there's a style that they like to drive that, that is, let's say, a sporty one versus a work one. So therefore, if I put an offer to buy a sporty add-on to a Jeep, um, I need to make sure I didn't just send it to all car drivers. I needed to send it to pe- you know people who drove, let's say, Jeep Wranglers in a particular year. And maybe age makes a difference. Maybe geography. If it's something for um, that, let's say, is built for driving on beaches, then I wouldn't send it to somebody, let's say, in um, you know Iowa. So it's about okay. figuring out not only who you want to target, but who you don't want to target. Well, that that is one of of, of all the lessons I learned. Um, was in the beginning, most of us spend all our time trying to figure out our ideal customer and who we want to be selling to. Um, and often that ends up being such a broad thing that it's kind of hard to zero down. But one of the lessons I learned um, kind of the hard way was that often the best thing you can do is figure out who you don't want to do business with. And one of the examples I heard I was uh, in, at an interaction I had with, with another business owner, uh, she was bragging on the fact that she intentionally left typos on her website because she knew the type of person who was that specific who would have been offended by it is not the kind of client she did well with. Okay, that, that's um, that's and, fascinating because <laughs> it would yeah, drive no, no, me it, it would a, drive me nuts if there was well, a typo exactly, and I, right. I'd reach out to the person and say, "Hey, did you know there was a typo on on your site?" And and like I said, I don't I don't defend the typo idea, but the concept being often the toughest part is figuring out. And and I think you know, as you, when you own your business, you know what that's like. There are some customers that are bad customers. Yeah, it's not good. You know, there's not a good fit. They're they're whatever the parameters are. The best thing you can do is say no, thank you. Okay, perfect. We're going to go into our first commercial break. We are here with Mark Haskelson, President and CEO of the Compliancy Group. 
and one of the cutting-edge leaders of direct marketing for over 25 years. He was there at the start of what we now call the direct marketing era. We'll be right back. Success comes from not only what you know, but also who you know. Welcome back to It's All About the Questions with award-winning author Laura Stewart. Mark, just before the commercial break, we were talking about um, selecting your target market and, and narrowing it down, and that one of the most important tips you got was um, you not only need to know who you are targeting, but who you aren't targeting. And, and I know for a lot of my listeners out there, it's much easier for them to figure out who they don't want to target than it is to find out who they want to target. And yes, some people do have trouble saying, well, I don't want you as a client. They just figure they should accept everybody. What are some questions? What are some things that people can do right now while they're listening? Start writing down notes. You know, as long as you're not driving your car, everybody, if you're driving your car, then just listen to this again in podcast, okay, when you're sitting down. I don't want you taking notes while you're driving, okay? Um, I always have to remind people of that. (laughs) That's your second public service announcement. That's my second public service (laughs) announcement. So what are some questions, what are some things that people can start thinking about to help them refine that? So the the first thing I often recommend to people is look at your clients. So if you just step back and look at the people that you do business with, um, there are some that are, let's say, you enjoy working with and maybe you make more money, they're more profitable, etc. And then there's other ones that aren't. Now, so often what happens is once you've kind of broken into those, let's say, two categories, you know, start take, start looking for traits that are unique or common. Give okay, me an so example, example of a trait. Um, so in my business, I'll, I'll use my business because I think it's a good example. You know, it's one that's present in my mind. And it's a great business. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> what we found was big companies even though normally what we do would, would, would appeal very, would be very appealing to a large organization, we saw it and said, you know what? The big companies wanted a tr- much more from us on the, let's say, the sales process. They were much more demanding of us on our delivery. They usually wanted lower pricing. They, 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 they were, uh, you know, a, a much longer cycle to do business with. Now, the perception was they would also be higher dollar. But what we found was when we really looked at it, um, the small and mid-sized market was one that they, we could deal directly with, it, with, with the decision maker versus committee. Okay, so now you start seeing the trade. So, you know, just because somebody's big doesn't mean that they're better. So in our case, we found mid-sized. Um, Can you define mid-sized as what? So in our case, that's a um, organization that's probably somewhere roughly fifty to five hundred employees. Okay. They might have one physical location, but usually they have let's say five to ten. Okay, so that that's important to note, everybody, that you need to get a little more specific. Like you can't just say midsize. You need to understand what midsize is for you. Okay, go ahead, Mark. No, great point because. The other thing you have to watch out for is common language, right? Because you, you, you nailed it on the head. Uh, mid-size, to, to, let's say, to me, is that size. But if you're um, AT&T, mid-size might be, you know, um, you know, multinational corporation. Right. So, um, so back to, to traits. So you're looking for these common things that are replicatable. 
Okay, so the one I gave you before was they were a certain number of locations. They perhaps they, you know, we're, we deal in healthcare, so we noticed that, let's say, eye care ODs or optometrists performed very differently than, let's say, dentists. So we very quickly said, okay, we don't want to, not that we don't do business with dentists, but that, that's not who we're going to target. Okay, so we, you know, we, and when we looked at, let's say, using eye care as an example, um, the privately held organizations were the ones that we did well, so that we continued to look for ways that we could communicate just with those folks. Right, so we weren't interested in, let's say, the um, going to Costco, which has eye care components in it. We were looking for the privately held firms, uh, especially the ones that were had multi locations. Gotcha. Okay, that makes that makes a, a lot of sense. So in, in Vero Beach, that would be somebody like my, my favorite eye doctors, um, Dr. Mallon, Dr. Katz. Um, they're just amazing. So they have no, their own hopefully, practice. Hopefully they're clients. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Maybe I should talk to them about you guys. Um, all right. So we've broken it down that you're looking at your client list. That's one of the first steps that people can take. So look at the different traits. Now, once they've narrowed it down, figured out who they aren't targeting, like you did, the, the bigger clients, the non-privately held, um, a certain size client seems to be your best, the, the sales cycle shorter, you, you tend to have greater revenue opportunities with them, and you like working with them. What's the next step with the direct marketing aspect? Because now all so we, we next- haven't even marketed yet, right? We've just figured out the first step. Who? Yep. Who? The, the the next set of questions, and you know, if you remember when you were in grade school, the who, what, where, when, how, why. My favorite is why, as everybody knows. Uh, yep, why? It's the same idea. So if we know that these one group is more is more advantageous to us than another, the next question is, where are they? How do you communicate with them? Okay, and and what do you think they're going to respond to? You know, when should you talk to them? Um, you know, the why being, uh, what are the things that are going to be value propositions to them? Now, wh- once you've got that, now it's, okay, what mediums can you find that match that? Right? So most people presume, oh, I'm going to do social media, for example. The problem is social media is a really interesting communication tool, but it's not necessarily going to get you any, let's say, new opportunities to do business with. Okay, it's what I would call um, the concept of an integrated marketing program, which means if I wanted to speak to you, let's say if you were my target, um, I might speak to you by the radio stations you listen to. Okay, I might know that you like a particular website. There's a common industry standard website that you look at. Um, I can obviously try to garner your contact information, let's say email. Um Physical, traditional direct marketing as in a as in a postcard or a letter is still actually very, very high performing. Um, and then ultimately, when you look at all those things put together, now, now, now I have a good picture of who you are. Okay, I, I've made some assumptions of what you're going to be interested in, and now, now the next step is what I call. Um, and actually, I didn't invent this, so I don't want to take credit for it. There's something called recency, frequency. Monetary analysis. Recency, okay, the frequency, is, monetary analysis. Okay, you have like a minute yep. and 20 seconds to describe that. <laughs> okay, the more break. recently I spoke to you, 
the more frequently I spoke to you, the more money I'll make. Okay. Is that the idea that people respond immediately and that you have to have like seven touch points with them for the frequency before they really begin to remember you and equate you with a potential business opportunity? So that's all part of it. Now, what happens though, if I, if I touched, if I did communicate with you lots, let's say I gave you the seven touch points, but it wasn't something that was engaging to you that had the correct call to action, doesn't mean we're going to do business together. Okay, you might know me, but I, part, an important part of this is what's the action or what's the desired um, outcome. And that leads and into in, the value proposition that you need to craft. Yes. Okay. So when we come back from the, the news break, everyone, and if you're on the podcast, it'll seem like just instantly because that's the power of the replay. But for those of you listening guys, when we come back from the news break, we're going to be here with Mark Haskelson. And Mark, let's go into what is a value proposition and how somebody begins to craft that for their target audience. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. Okay, awesome. We'll be right back with more from Mark Haskelson. And it's all about the questions because remember, everyone, the right questions can change your life. And you have to ask them of the right people. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. We are here with Mark Haskelson. If you're just joining us live on the radio on iHeartRadio or on Waxy, AM and FM, um, if you're on the podcast, it was instantaneous. So, Mark, before the break, we were talking about this whole concept of RFM, recently frequency and monetary. You outlined um, how people figure out their target market and who their target market is not. I love that you fact you throw in the not. I think that's so critical for people to realize that there's some people that are not your right customers. So even though you may think you're making a lot of money off of them, um, you, you may not be. My friend Kendra Lee, who I, I just love, she's one of the top salespeople for, for tech and otherwise um, tr- sales training, uh, KLA group, just brilliant. She always classified her clients A, B, C, and D clients. And she said, sometimes your A clients you may not make a lot of money from, but they refer a lot of people to you. So you want to keep them on board. So you need to classify your clients in, in that way. And your D client may be the person you make the most money off of, but they're such a pain in the you-know-what that the cost of doing business with them is too high. And you may need to let them go. Um, here's a question for you. I want to talk about what is the value proposition. How does somebody put that together? But we had an interesting conversation on break. Do you think that luck is involved with business and marketing, or is there something else? Well, I've been pretty fortunate, um, so I'd like to say I'm reasonably lucky, but in reality, all of what i found to really drive success is how well you focus and how hard you work. Because um, if you're doing those things, it's amazing the, the, you know, the good luck that, that, that falls on your doorstep. Uh, when you're when you're aggressively trying or proactively trying to affect the change, so it's about your RFM. Actually, really, it's about frequency, consistency. It's about finding the right messaging to the right people, and just keep doing it, even though it might not seem like it's working right away. Well, it's funny the way you say that because often what I found is what where where. 
um, I've been very fortunate that many of the initiatives I've been involved with, like if you take Clancy Group, we were a disruptor to the market. And it was an established market that everyone said, you know, this is you, you hire expensive auditors who come and charge you very high um, hourly rates and write your report. Um, so often the mistake is whether it's value prop or, or you know, you, where you focus your efforts is sometimes what seems like the logical thing and everyone's going in the right, you know, in the same direction. Sometimes you've got to poke your head up, look around in the 360-degree range and say, hey, maybe I don't want to be, maybe the right thing for me to do is not to be marching along, um, but to be looking for, you know, maybe I have to swim upstream for a little bit to find an alternative um, approach or value prop or, or solution set. Okay, so sometimes you have to stop and, yes. and look around and say, is this working? Do I see it potentially working? But it all goes back to what is that value prop and am I disrupting or am I just going along? Does that sound right? Oh, yeah, absolutely, because if you take, let's say, um, if you take what we do at, what we did at compliance groups five, six years ago when we decided that we would stop being consultants and that we would use this software to, you know, the equivalent of QuickBooks but for compliance, um, a self-guiding tool that didn't require an expensive auditor, you know, that cut the price by, you know, to a tenth of what the industry was standing, who were charging. Uh, most people thought we were crazy. They just ignored us. They thought we were insane. Um, but, now all of a sudden, when you look at it five years later, and and the market embraced it, loved it. You know, it's it's, it's a much better solution. It's cost effective. Um, suddenly, what seemed you know to use a, a Gandhi, um, a Gandhiism, I guess. You know, and he had said, you know, first they ignored us, then they ridiculed us, then they tried to fight us, and then we won. And that's actually been a way that you know, our, that that personally for me, and 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 how we run our company. Uh, is that by focusing on, uh, when you talk about value prop, often it, don't look at it from your perspective, right? What you think is valuable, often your clients view it totally, you know, the, it can be the opposite or it can be something that you never thought of. So to one of the questions you had about how do you establish a value proposition, some of it is stopping and asking questions of your clients, you know, I think many business owners are, are afraid of their clients. Um, I embrace, I will pick up the phone, you know, if the phone rings at, whether it's 6 in the morning or 8 o'clock at night, if I see someone taking the time to call into our company, I pick up the phone. And there are many a surprised person who, when they get the president on the phone, um, they're, they don't, they're, well, I'm surprised you answered the phone. I'm like, well, why wouldn't I? I want to understand what you think. I want, you know, how are we, are, are, are we delivering to you the value you are looking for? Uh, and, and, in that example, when we do that with our clients, often what they told us was most important to them was not what we expected. And, for example, if you take the MSPs that, that you and I or, or we do a lot of business with, we presume they just wanted additional revenue and leads from us, right? We were an alternative that they could add to their offering. When we got deeper and asked them what did they want, they said, no, we need credibility, we need we need to differentiate ourselves in our market, and if you can give me tools to do that, then I want to work with you. Versus, and even if they didn't understand the difference of of how our solution worked, what what they did see the difference was we understood what their challenges were, and we were ready to 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 to, to help them solve that. 
whether it was directly related to generating revenue for us or not, we understood it or we took the time to understand it from their eyes, you know, empathy, and then built solution sets around what was their concerns versus what we thought we needed to bring to market. Did you always call them and ask them? You know, people seem to love SurveyMonkey and, and things like that. Is there a best way or a better way to go out there and ask your clients what it is is important to them? There are lots of ways of doing it. And I, and I, and I, I wouldn't want to say that unequivocally there's a best way, but I can tell you for me, the human interaction of calling someone up and saying, I am generally interested in what you think of what, how, what we're providing to you is the most powerful thing you can do. Because the surveys, which are the surveys, are great if you're looking for a broad set of information. But if you really look at it, and this this goes back to database analytics, you know, a strong response rate from your client base might be thirty percent. You know, the average open rate of emails is is you know a two to five percent open rate is considered an industry strong industry standard. So relying on the survey monkeys, etc., is not a bad way to go. But I still think if you really care about your company, there was a there was another um, executive that I was meeting with at one point, and he wanted to know who was going to be who was going to be the person to make those phone calls and who was going to be the person to be that let's say um, uh, face or voice in the market. And I looked at him like he was crazy. I was like, if that's not you, then how could you expect anybody else in your firm to do that? I know when I had so the, my MSP, at least once a quarter, we had a touch point with every client. And either, typically it was me who did it. I made a phone call to them or actually showed up on site and just said, hey, what's going on? What do you need? How's things going? How's your business? Not what we can do for you, but tell me about your business. Tell me about your dreams, your hopes, where you want to be going. And that helped me figure out my value prop to them was how I can help them achieve their dreams. Yeah, it's perfect. That's, that's a great summarization of it. Because, you know, often, although we may have, um, we, you know, if you were coming from two different sides, and, and one of the things I often say with a lot of the people that we do business with, we do a lot of cross-marketing. When you talk about direct marketing, we do a lot of where I go to somebody or other organizations in the market and say, listen, we're selling to the same decision maker. We're not competitive. Let's, let's work together. Right. So, if you take that approach with your customers, it's you know you you, you I'm a tool in your in your toolbox. Um, help me understand. Can I can I? Is there more tools I can give you? Is there? Can I make this? Can I change the handle on this to make it so it works better for you? Uh, and in the end, you, you're you're really you'll find that going back to your original question of segmentation and how do you find the 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 right kind and the right value prop. The, the more you ask those questions, um, one, the more you learn. And two, I really believe that your customers and your partners appreciate it. It shows that you actually care. Okay, so give me an example of a value proposition. And feel free to use the compliancy group as an example so that my listeners know, here's what a value proposition might look like. So in our case, so we, we make compliance tracking solutions. So when you describe it that way, it sounds like a very technical you know, thing. Well, what we found was when we started talking to our clients, especially um, in the small and mid-sized market that we serve, the end decision maker and the user of our tool was not a, um, a, a traditional compliance officer or technical tech savvy individual. 
Okay. So what we found was what they want, what, what they said they wanted. I mean, what we originally marketed was different. What, what, as time went on, we, by listening to them, they wanted total solution. Okay. What they wanted was, um, we don't use the word easy because compliance is not an easy thing. They wanted, they wanted this complex thing simplified. Okay, so if you look at our, our, our mission statement, it's to simplify compliance so you can confidently focus on your business. We didn't, it took us a bunch of years to come up with that because as we listen more and more to our clients, that's what they wanted to do. And one of the real things that I would stress to people with value propositions is don't make them long, crazy, complex things. Try to reduce it down to the most quintessential element. Right. So knowing that my clients, you know, if I after by the way, both phone surveys and using, um, we survey all of our clients um, every year. We survey them to have, you know, and there's a set of five to seven questions we ask them. What we found was what always rose to the top was the idea of this total solution, and then the second thing was um, that they really wanted to, they wanted um, or they needed us to be experts. Okay, so if you think of many of the pursuits you see with technology today, it's self-serve, which is great, right? There's lots of economic advantages, but if you forget that the end user sometimes really wants self-serve, but yes, they also, but they really want someone there to hold their hand. So, um, and that was the lesson we learned. Originally, we presumed we built this great application, they would do it themselves, yet when we started talking to them, one of the most valuable things that they took away from us was the fact that we have compliance coaches. And originally, our coaches were there just to make sure they set it up correctly. But what we quickly realized was, from our client's perspective, that coach was a trusted helper. It, it, it helped them. Um, often, this was a complex thing. They were very busy. They needed someone to, you know, the power of the appointment. The fact that they were meeting with a coach every other Tuesday kind of gave them the, whether it was the excuse, the reminder, um, or, or forced them to do it. It helped them get this complex thing done. When Without it, they weren't getting to it. Okay, perfect. We're going to go into our last commercial break, and we're going to talk some more about this because this is such a huge topic. Uh, we'll be back with Mark Haskelson talking more about value proposition. Success comes from not only what you know, but also who you know. Welcome back to It's All About the Questions with award-winning author Laura Stewart. Mark, you made the the highly tweetable comment uh, just before the break, the power of the appointment. I I love that concept, the accountability of that call with the coach, knowing that there's somebody there that's going to help you, that it's not just purely automated, that there's somebody behind it. Why do you think that in this day of um, everybody does stuff on their app, that there's still such a huge portion of the population that needs that person behind the app oh there's so many different levels on that one um i, one is I, really I opened up believe, a can of worms <laughs> yeah uh, well, i really do believe that 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 as part of being a solution provider you have to step back and look at different people want to interact with you in different ways Right, so the presumption of oh, if we put everything online and have videos and it's going to be really, really um, uh, high tech, etc. Often that doesn't work for everybody, right? So what I found is you really need to provide, um, let's say, the, 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 all the possible different ways that someone might want to communicate with you. You have to give them that capacity, whether it's phone, chat, email, video recordings, the web, etc. 
Um, now, the, the, the second part of that is um, we didn't, we, like I said, we, it took us a while to figure out that that's what was really important. Right, we we originally first we charged for it. We thought it was a value added service, and then over time realized that this was they didn't nearly want us to be acting as as advisors. They just wanted us to help them get it done and to keep them on task. So it uh, it just evolved. You know that so important that keep somebody on task thing. I know when I had my MSP. For anybody who's not a geek. Um, who doesn't have, or is not listen, is listening that's not was a reseller MSP is managed service provider so we did a lot of recurring revenue work and we managed infrastructure for people um, the biggest thing that I do now when I do my one on ones with clients and I I do my um, the hundred day mentoring that I do is the whole accountability idea of you know you're not alone you're working towards a goal but we're here to help. So that was part. That's part of my value proposition because, I, and I like that. I like that interaction. I can do everything online, but it's still something about talking to somebody and having somebody listen—not just hear, but listen—which is such a huge thing. Which you guys are really great at at Compliancy Group. Thank you. Also, I do find multi generational different. There, there is a difference um, based on who you are and what your background is uh, of comfort level with different um, different technologies or solution sets. So some of it goes back to that, you know, ask your clients what they want, how do they want to deal with you, right? How do they want to interact with you? And you might be um, shocked at what they say. <laughs> <laughs> I probably would be very shocked with a couple of people, but, you know, that's part of the how recently are you talking to somebody and actually asking them questions about themselves and not just trying to push something, right? Well, a, a whole concept, and I'm sorry, we probably don't have time to talk about it, is, the, is in, in marketing, the, the way that I try to stress to people is you can push marketing out, and that's, um, let's say, effective to a point. But if you can do, the term is pull marketing, that's the idea of educational webinars, informational content. It was the, 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 very much the culture of compliance group in that we provide a tremendous amount of free education in the market. Because what happens is we don't actually, we don't actually really have to market at all. You know, our clients come to us. They've heard about us. They've, you know, they, they trust us because we've shared information with them. We didn't try to sell them. We were truly being acting as a, as a, as a thought leader provider of content that that's what caused them to find us. And, um, you know, I highly recommend that to folks that, um, that you, you try to, in your, in your, how you create your value propositions, like you were saying is try to find ways that, you know, give your, you give the market the opportunity to want to find you. Because then they're highly qualified. They get the, they understand the issue. They know you solve the problem. And, you know, now it's very simple just explaining the pricing model. Okay. So what are some ways that people can begin to transition from push marketing to pull marketing? So, as we talked earlier, understand your market, know where they are, know what is important topics to them, then build content. And, and this is one thing that is, let's say, a mod. I think it was always there, but I think the 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 different media sources that are now available as far as the internet and all the different tools that are around. Now you really have the opportunity to come up with something that if you, whether it's um, two people out of a hundred. But if you know the two people out of 100 are really concerned about a particular topic, right? So um, in our case, there was a lot of confusion between what is a security risk assessment and what is being HIPAA compliant. 
So we started putting out articles and educational series on not what we do, but just on that concept, that misunderstanding. And what we found is, I mean, we have hundreds of thousands of people who've come to our site just to understand the difference in between the two. They attended a webinar or downloaded a, a white paper or an article. And um, so to going back to your question is knowing your client, knowing your ideal client, understanding what's important to them, understanding why they're buying from you, and then start creating content that is not selling. And that's probably the biggest mistake I see people make is that they – they're trying to do pull marketing, but they're trying to sell versus um, truly giving an intrinsic educational information, something, uh, depending on your business, obviously what that is can be many different things. Um, but to get people to, to want to hear what you have to say, because, uh, you know, often when I do, I do um, a lot of educational webinars where we invite people like you're, you've been kind enough to invite me to speak on your show. And often their, their presumption is they immediately start trying to sell. And I'm like, no, these people, if they wanted to be sold, they could call anybody. If you want, if they want, but they want to be educated. They want value. They want. They want to understand what the issue is. We find in that case, then they make great decisions, and hopefully, um, in our case, you know that that usually means they they come to us. And on the ysas dot com blog um, is where I, you, and I first met, which was doing an educational webinar about HIPAA compliance versus security. So any of my resellers out there that want to know, or if you just really want to understand what HIPAA is, go, go to that webinar. Um, Mark, I want to make sure people can find you and reach out to you if they have questions. What's the best way for people to get to you? So you can always go to compliancegroup.com, and there are lots of free resources there. Uh, if you have a specific question for me, and, and I really do, we, we have an Ask the Auditor function on our website. We really will answer it. Um, but feel free to email me directly. Uh, it's Mark, M-A-R-C, at compliancygroup.com. Okay, say that one more time. Okay, compliancy, Mark, M-A-R-C, at Compliancy Group, C-O-M-P-L-I-A-N-C-Y, group.com. Okay, in the last uh, minute that we have, what's one thing that you feel is important for everybody to know about direct marketing? Yeah, it's something that, I, in, you know, in this hour that we spent together, I explained some of the general mechanics of this. It really can take you a lifetime to, to, to perfect the, the, the science of it. Um, but the thing that I think is most important, you know, direct marketing is a simple idea of, you know, communicating one-on-one -on -one with someone in a way and giving them the opportunity to respond back to you directly. Okay, so whether whatever medium you're communicating with your clients in, whether it's at a whether it's a lunch and learn, a trade show, a uh, internet, you know, a, you know, a webinar, you know, content on the internet, make sure you give them the opportunity to communicate back. Okay, don't 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 you know? Often I see great uh, marketing where they never took the time to actually put in a call to action. Which is, hey, if you know, if you would like more information, here's how I can help you. So um, I'd say it's very important to make sure you 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 do that. And the last part of that is I, I would call integrated marketing, which is a lot of people. The mistake they make is they try one thing, it doesn't work well, and then they therefore say, oh, this doesn't work. Okay, think of your own buying habits. You often will, you know, you'll do some research, then you might. We have other priorities, then you'll do a little bit more research. Okay, and we're going to have to do another show with you because I've got five <laughs> seconds left. Remember, everybody, the right questions truly can change your life. So what are you asking today? Take care, everyone. Have a great day. You've been have listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. 
Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today. 